Well, hello again, all my fabulous, gorgeous listeners, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Glow West podcast. We're here to chat all about the wonders of sex, sexuality, and the body. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline West, and as always, I'm delighted to be part of the Tortoise Shack Network, where you can find tons of content on politics, culture, society, and of course, me with the sex podcast. If you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise as it really does help to keep the mics on or pop over to Apple and rate and review. You can also DM me about the podcast as well. It's a Glow West podcast on Twitter and Instagram. So today, um, given the week that it is, the joy of Eurovision, of course, we had to talk about sex and Eurovision. And I have the perfect person to talk about that with. Today, I'm chatting to Dr. Jamie Halliwell, who has recently passed his PhD in geography at Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK. His thesis is entitled Party for Everybody, interrogating the shaping of sexual identities through the digital fan spaces of the Eurovision Song Contest. He's a cultural geographer whose interests and work intersects with the geographies of the digital, sexuality and fandom, and his pronouns are he and him. Jamie, thanks Samel for joining me. How are you today? I am great, thank you. Nice to nice to meet you, and thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, fab. I just love this kind of area. I like I, I love the ridiculousness of Eurovision. I love the the sequence, the glitter, the campness, the absolute ridiculous nature of the of the songs. But how did you get interested enough in this to do a whole PhD and study in this area? Yeah, so um, I started off, um, I'm going to go way back now to cast your mind back to 1997 and when Katrina the Waves uh, won Eurovision uh, for the UK uh, with Love Shine Light and I think they pipped Ireland that year as well. (laughs) I think we were sick of hosting it by that stage. We we were like, you can have it. We did like three years in a row. We were like, this is bankrupt in our country. We can't do this anymore. (laughs) Yeah, so going back all the way back to then, I remember watching it, and I was we were I was with my fa- my mum and my dad, and we were sort of holiday in a caravan in Lancashire, uh, back back way back when through a little cathode ray TV screen, you know, and just watching it, and I always remember just pa- them panning onto the green room and between the waves, like like cheering when they get like twelve points. Um, so that's when it really started, and I was kind of like really fascinated, like all these different countries coming together. And you, I was always fascinated with like like places and numbers and all this kind of thing. So the, the scoreboard really fascinates me at that point. And then I think I had a bit of a hiatus probably for a few years as I was sort of like finding my way through like uh, teenage you know, growing up, all that kind of thing. Um, and then I think oh, try, I think it was about two thousand five, two thousand six is when. Um, so if I started getting the internet and uh, you know dial up and <laughs> had all the, like all oh, remember the, the crunching noises when you dial into the phone to actually go on the internet, and then we got broadband and I think it was about two thousand and seven I think it was, and then through that I just discovered all these like YouTube videos of like Eurovision clips and like even national final selection processes which I had no idea was a thing until I actually found some on YouTube from Sweden and then Melody Festivalen which is their sort of selection process to pick their Eurovision song um and then I then I had a semi-final in like 2000 which I only discovered in 2005 I was like oh it's getting it's a lot bigger than you know the, what it is and it was getting bigger as well uh by that point and that's i think then i was sort of mainly watching it i think and it was a very 
individual practice for me sort of like to be during that time and then I think by I was by the time I started doing my PhD which is I think was 2013 um and then I I, I that I was gonna I was gonna look at issues around national identity in Eurovision to begin with and then it sort of changed by process of me meeting uh somebody in work who was a Eurovision fan and she said, oh, you need to listen to this uh, radio show, this Wales, this uh, Wales 12 Points radio show in Swansea on, online on a Thursday night. I was like, oh, right, OK. So I then tuned into that through a recommendation and then sort of met different Eurovision fans and discovered this whole online community around Eurovision and this radio show and then started getting involved in Twitter and that kind of thing. And then just pretty, pretty much because of that, I then started looking at, in my PhD, where I sort of look at, digital uh, social media and how that produces fan communities and shapes fan and sexual identity, you know, and all these different spaces it sort of opened me up to uh, from from that, just that sort of like that encounter. So... Okay, okay. That is a, a long, comprehensive history of, of your interest <laughs> in the, in this area. But that's, I mean, your vision's gone on a long while now. But yeah, when I was growing up, it was one night. And now it's like mm-hmm. five days of an event. And then each country has like, you know, votes for their own song to get shot. Like, it's a whole massive big thing now. And like, you'd probably, if you add it up, it'd probably be like a month long, really, thing if you added in everything. But like, where, where does the sex come in? Obviously, it's very casual and very um just ridiculous and light-hearted and, and silly because there's no politics allowed at Eurovision well officially sometimes they kind of sneak in um as well but but talk to me about about the sex part where is it the lyrics that you, you kind of look at some of the lyrics can be kind of interesting yeah so I I usually I, I looked at the fan perspective so I did mainly my interviews uh with fans and sort of exploring how they associate themselves with the contest and how they sort of express their sexuality fan identity you know through that and looking at the online spaces through which they you know and the fan practices so there's this intersection between fan practices and sexual sexual identity that I look at in my in my thesis uh online uh, and I think it's it it is interesting. I think when people think of your origin, you always always get associated with like, oh, it's a gay thing, oh, it's a queer thing, it's a camp thing. But it, there's so many different lenses to your origin of what it is to different people, um, and lots of fans sort of relate to it in their own way. Um, so I think w- when I was sort of talking to fans, I think mo- quite a lot of them sort of like the ambiguity around your origin in terms of. Um, you know, it has this idea of queerness and campness that it isn't really bounded by anything and it's not labelled as like, and you know, it's very popular obviously amongst uh, LGBTQ plus people, of course, um, but I think there's a popularity there, but it's not bounded by those by those, those categories. Um, so I think particularly online where those boundaries are a lot more fluid and dynamic, uh, as well, sort of, um, a lot more people are coming into it online. Um, but it is, it is, it is, it is interesting when you sort of like when say like uh, events are organised. So you were saying before, like it's it's a month long. I can tell you, Eurovision is so much more like more than a month long. <laughs> Okay. We're talking like on a daily level yeah. um, for a lot of people um, because I could, you know, you can tweet about it on social media like every day, you know, there's fans who do that every day. Um, we've also had like 
a lot of online events, especially through lockdown last year with the hashtag Eurovision again event where people would be coming together on a Saturday night and just watching Eurovision, um, uh, an old Eurovision. So I think say like 1976 and they'll pick a year and then they sort of coordinate that with the uh, Eurovision organizers as well to actually broadcast um a that contest so we like all... a lot of fun it's great yeah. honestly it was it just saved my lockdown <laughs> <laughs> yeah. lockdown last um I think they started it March April and then it went on for quite a way I think I, I, to be honest because of COVID and everything my time scales oh, yeah. are all yeah no absolutely I hear you on that one yeah yeah <laughs> So, uh, and it'd be great because people would be like screenshotting things and then sort of like uh, talking about one particular uh, example, I think is from 1976. And I never even heard the song before in my life, but it was the Norwegian entry in 1976 and she came last, which was completely, she was completely robbed, of course. <laughs> and she sang a song called Mata Harry in English by Anne Karin Strom. And everyone just loved it because she just came onto stage in this big sparkly gold outfit, dark sunglasses, sort of strutting on stage, ready to sing this big number. And it just, everyone just sort of like producing a little community around that and all this support for her. Because what would happen then is uh, at the once they broadcast that, they would then uh, do a voting and then everyone votes and then compares that against the actual result. That was the year that Brotherhood of Man won for the UK. Um, and I think she ended up coming like top 10 or something like that. But um, She got her moment in the end. She did. She did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Okay, so the fans are like fairly involved a lot. Do you think that that really changed? Because... Um, I don't think it was always like for a while Eurovision was like deeply uncool and then now it's it's just become more beloved again. Do you know, it, it's like a really kind of cool thing. And it, it, before it was like, oh, my God, that's so cringy. The songs are terrible. And now it's like, OK, we like this now again. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember like if you think about it, like back in like, oh, I don't know what, pre-90s probably were thinking that, you know, Eurovision was very... It was all like it was a very very formal event if you look at the audiences watching those contests back and everyone would be sitting down and then like sort of in ball gowns all the women being ball grand girl ball gowns the men would be all like in suits and ties and everything and then i think i think probably late 90s i'd say um so maybe from 1998 onwards i think that's when sort of i think some arenas got a bit bigger uh, and then there was more, and then, I but actually, I was thinking about standing areas at Eurovision. I don't think they came in until quite a lot later. Um, but I think I would sort of say that probably from 90, 97, 98 is when it sort of became more of this event for, you know, LGBT people. We had Donna International win um, in 1998. That's true. And, yeah. Uh, and Dana really changed things. So for mm. anyone who doesn't know, um, Dana was the contest's first trans performer. Well, probably first out trans performer who knows um mm. but talk to us a little bit about the significance of of dana um because that was that was a huge turning point i think for a lot of things yeah i think so i think uh, especially back in is i know there's been some work uh where it looked at like uh, gay men's associations with her with her win uh in israel particularly um and just and th that and as well i think if i remember around that time it was Israeli people in Israel trying to tell her was basically wanting to wanting basically not want her to go uh, to Eurovision because she is this trans woman and you know uh, representing uh, those people um, and then 
a lot much later we have uh, Conchita in 2014, um, later with the beard as she became known. And I just, I just, I just, it was just a fabulous moment. And I think that's the thing with yours, just create these moments around a particular performer as well. And that sort of, that really happened in 2014 with Conchita. I mean, everyone was just like, oh, you know, she's really standing up for something. And even beyond the event itself, she got, I think she was involved in, um, I think she attended a few EU summits about LGBT rights and things, I think, I think so. yeah, yeah. contests and things like that. So I think that sort of demonstrates that, you know, Eurovision sort of um, start, can start these things and make also make change as well. Um, and Conchita would have been a lot of people's first exposure to um, somebody who the idea of, of, of drag wasn't just, uh, you know, stray female person or impersonation as such like because she had the beard so it was full on it was not about passing or fitting in and it was this lovely kind of shake up of drag which may have been very kind of stylish and you know very straight not quite RuPaul level but it was heading that kind of direction so Conchita would have been quite a quite a bundle of confusion for a lot of people figuring out trans and drag and and Mm -hmm. LGBT stuff then yeah 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 um and yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Straight out. Oh, you're grand. Um, so, so talk me through. You know, again, that that representation. Have has there been many kind of out LGBT people? Because I know, you know, obviously people are in the closet and stuff. But in places like Russia, Russia is obviously not a very good place for people who are LGBT. Um, and they've censored some of the acts, haven't they, as well from from performing or just caused some kind of outrage over the fact that LGBT people are taking part in this hilariously camp contest. Mm. Yeah, I think I remember it was it 2009, I think, because they, they hosted the event. And then I think there was a, what's their, um, the, weren't they trying to arrange Pride March, I think, around that time? And I think it did obviously cause a lot of ructions amongst the Russian government and all that kind of thing. Um, and it's, it is interesting, especially later on when, I'm maybe thinking 2014, 2015, when Russia was getting a lot of booze around in the in the arena in 2014 with the Tomal Chevy sisters, I think, when they got 12 points there was a lot of booze in the audience when they got that. And the same with Polina Gagarina in 2015, where people were either booing. I think I was just reading recently uh, one of Catherine Baker's, uh, rereading one of Catherine Baker's papers. I think she talks about this a lot more in detail, where she's talking about those moments. And I think 2015, they, the, organizers had to, the organizers installed anti-booing technology where they were trying to drown out some of the booze in the arena. Um, and it was in, it was very interesting because it's not really clear what that boom was if it was if it was one against the um, Russia's home um, you know the you know anti anti gay agenda in Russia for one or if it was to do with the relationship with Crimea and Ukraine and all these different kind of things were going on. Um, so I think the way people are booing I think is not very maybe on for different reasons um but i found it quite interesting with russia in 2016 when is when they sort of sent sergey lazarev i don't know if you remember you, you were the only one was he like and- the really hot one he was <laughs> yeah like, like super uber masculine kind of type 
Yeah, and it was really, it was very interesting with the fandom because I think of quite a few people sort of debating if he was gay and all this kind of thing um, around that time. But it was in, but like at that point, the booing kind of stopped, and I was, it was, I was kind of thinking, well, is this because this, you've got a really hot man representing Russia? Is why people aren't booing you, <laughs> you know? Mm, um, but then for Polina and the Tom Chevys, they were booed. So it just, it was just a very yeah, interesting. You know, yeah. Um, maybe a bit of misogyny kind of thrown into the mix as well before that so yeah and I was kind of wondering actually if 2016 for Russia were kind of doing that basically to appeal to a gay audience maybe you know by having a very sexy honky man you know (laughs) representing them you know on a stage that they know that is very you know that is very popular but you know gay people so interesting yeah well and and china has censored as well so it's 2018 um ireland's act rhino shaughnessy never say that shaughnessy um (laughs) i should i should know how to pronounce that but um we'll let that one pass um so he had um a same-sex couple as a as a dance a part of the dance so that the chinese edited that out of the Mm -hmm. broadcast which is interesting yeah and i think that was my favorite song that year as well actually i just loved that it was just um you know and and i think as soon as they i think china censored it i think the ebu cut the broadcasting rights as soon as they actually did it um did that thing but um but yeah it, it's just it, it, you know I, I it was it was interesting that year particularly because i think i in some of my research when looking at uh tweets fan tweets and i think one of them Sort of, was, they were talking about the gay agenda, and I think one of them was uh, had an image of Ryan O'Shaughnessy's performance with the two guys dancing quite in a nice, like really with a nice embrace and all that kind of thing. Um, and then I think somebody, and then there was Eleni Ferreira with Fuego, um, which was came second for Cyprus that year, which was just insanely brilliant uh, <laughs> it's just this really solid pop song but it, it was a lot it was I, it was very interesting looking at they were comparing these two tweets and they were still saying what the saying what i think how could i say it, it was like i think they're saying what the gay agenda what what people what sort of like locals if you like or like um non-fans see what the gay agenda is with the irish entry in comparison to cyprus's entry which is more of a gay agenda for the fans, particularly. So it was kind of like, you know, I think I think there was a, maybe a conversation there that Eleni Ferreira's song sort of like brought a load of gays together, pretty much. Um, you know, and comparing her, you know, sort of comparing her to the gay agenda where she's not like, I don't know, really. Um, can't really remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, no, it's it's interesting to say that that sense of community that that comes in as well, and I think like for the longest time in Ireland, we you know we we won a, a whole bunch in the nineties, and then we got sick of it. We were like, we can't afford this anymore, and then we kind of forgot about it. Um, and then Jedward entered the Eurovision, and we love Jedward now in Ireland, so we won't hear a bad word against Jedward. But t- they kind of were brought their own community into it, you know, because Jedward have community from and fans from all sorts of spectrums and sexualities as well so mm. what what did you think about the the jedward entry because it was very like you know wet dancing in the rain and all this kind of stuff it was very you know there was a little bit of sex in there yeah i mean um because was it 
2011-2012 because they yeah they came back in 2012 yeah so um yeah because I remember because I think because uh, they, they did Celebrity Big Brother over here didn't they at some point yeah after, yeah and and obviously did X Factor here and I think and I think as well if I remember the UK gave them 12 points in 2011 um but I, I think as well because obviously people over here know them so you know more likely to vote for vote for what they know kind of thing yeah yeah um um yeah I mean yeah I, 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 I don't really know much about Jedford myself um but it was quite interesting to see two kind of different audiences coming together with like X Factor people who've seen them at Big Brother then seeing them on Eurovision and I think I think I think from what I was talking to about talk to people about I think there was just like I think they saw Jedward as this kind of very quintessential Eurovision act if that if that makes sense that totally makes sense they were they they fit right in at Eurovision yeah yeah, and they're just you know, the, and it's interesting now looking at them now because they're getting they're quite involved in politics as well. Um, I think I, I think in British politics and what's going oh, on. Oh, they have they have an opinion on everything. They're yeah. so great now, and like woke about everything, and so they've been fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think I think that's the thing with your origin. It's sort of like it's not just you know just a one night thing or a week thing. You know, as it, it does actually, you know, so many geopolitical. Uh, intersections with it that go beyond the whole event itself really um so. well even you know when you're talking about community and people voting for what they know and stuff i remember back to gina g and Ua mm -hmm. just a little bit and that was like that was huge even before it went to your vision i don't think it won though no. um no it didn't win but that it was huge in its own right and that was kind of pretty sexy i remember the video and she's in the corner and there's lights and stuff like that and a really short little skirt but it was very um cool and poppy and kind of camp as well at the same time and um like you said yeah people vote for for what they know but, but, but was there a fandom on that because i think it kind of became like a saturday night an anthem even outside of eurovision in that aspect yeah i mean i remember i think i i, I used to, i loved that song as a kid as well and i and i wasn't really into eurovision at that point but i do remember buying the single but not really realizing it was a eurovision song at all and then I just to discover I think I discovered it quite a few years later and I was like oh wow she she went to Europe <laughs> yeah. it's amazing and I think as well for that I, it was interesting the UK's entries in the 90s because in 95 I think they sent uh, they sent Love City Groove with Love City Groove which is quite a rap rap anthem which was so like it was very unusual for Eurovision because I don't think many people had heard rap. I think Finland did try some rappy kind of music in the eighties, but I don't think it was it really cottoned on with with the juries uh, in their respective countries. And also ninety six, I must remember that the public weren't voting at that point. It was all it was all juries, professional juries. Okay. Across okay. Europe that were voting. Yeah. Um, and then I think it wasn't until the year after 97 was when they trialed the televoting thing and the and public the public could vote. And I remember uh, in especially 97, I don't know if you remember the, the Iceland entry um, that came after the UK, Paul Oscar and uh, Mine Hansty Dance in my oh, final I dance. Don't. Is that that was the no, that was Norway or something where they were all dressed up like demons or something. They had all the prosthetics on. Oh, Lordy. Lord, yeah, yeah. Denmark. Yeah. Okay, okay. 
Yeah. There's so much campness. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I would highly recommend you to watch Ice in 1997 because it was kind of, it was kind of the first very, very sexual, very sensual dance routine, I think, that Eurovision probably ever seen up until that point, I think. Because Paul Oscar's there in like these leather trousers and the sort of uh, white shirt, black jacket, and he's with these women, four women, dancing around it. And while he sat on a leather couch in 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 stockings and um, very short skirts, and it's all it's all very leather. So you know, <laughs> you know, it was just, and he was very like he was, you know, he uh, he's uh, he's very. I mean, Paul Oscar's very popular in Iceland. He was, I think, he he is gay himself, and I think he was. I don't think his parents accepted him. I think um, for his uh, for his gay gay identity. Um, but uh, then there's sort of you know he's sort of there sat on the couch and these two women bring the legs over onto the sofa and then he sort of runs a finger up the th- round by the thigh and everything Very risky. so yeah so i think especially i think that kind of triggered this whole sort of you know this gender sexuality representation and then we had donna international as well which i think was more profound in you know winning the event in 1998 um so yeah, I'd highly recommend the Iceland entry because it is just great. And I also remember, I think it, it was mainly the public that voted for them as well, as okay. opposed to the professional juries. Oh, so, so public yeah. wanted more sex by that point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and well, we can't talk about Iceland without talking about the movie from was it last year, Will Ferrell and who was it, Amy? Oh, I don't know. I can't. My head is just a blank when it comes to time and stuff now. But, but that. What were your thoughts on, on that movie? Because that was seemed to just be like a pure joy, but it also seemed to capture your vision quite well. I think in some of its nonsensical stuff. Oh yeah, I mean definitely. I, I I mean it was just it was in form of escapism, and I think with your origin, it is escapism when you watch it or engage with it in the fandom especially now uh, with covid uh and we're so so grateful we've got a contest that's going on next week um which i'm getting very excited about um and yeah fire saga i mean i it was just it was really it was it was well done i thought especially the whole uh party and the extended events around eurovision during eurovision week were encapsulated really well as that whole scene I think is it in Dan Stevens's character's house or something, and they had this Eurovision party. Yeah, and he was there, and loads of other Eurovision acts are there as well, singing yeah. a sort of oh, it was a medley, wasn't it? And it, there was a name for that. Um, and they sang like Shares Believe, I think, as well. It was like <laughs> the whole medley of songs that went on in that bit, and I thought it was really well done because that whole party atmosphere does happen around Eurovision. There's, there's you know, when you have Eurovision there's also like the Euro Club which um, um, which you usually can only get access to if you are an accredited uh, journalist or, or if you're a fan journalist or if you're a member of a, a official uh, Eurovision fan club um, and they have throughout that whole week they have events on so there's like an Israel party for example uh, and they go and they go like all especially during Eurovision week they go on to like 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning you know yeah, I w- I can imagine. I can imagine there's quite a lot of hookups and everything behind the scene and <laughs> all that kind of thing. Glitter everywhere. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but but it's interesting how in that space, it's like all these fans can come together, but also the artists, also official 
media you know journalists and everything if they want to take me to attend these things so i think i've attended a few uh euro club event things um and they, they are really 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 good um you know and it's just this whole like party so you're dancing to like your favorite Eurovision songs and all that kind of thing Aww. um so lovely. yeah so five star could definitely encapsulated all that really yeah. well um and i thought the Husevik song was just absolutely brilliant it was nominated for an oscar as well um and it was performed at the oscars which think, yeah which i remember and i just i was just i just it was just how you know like the that song it just translated into an oscar nomination you know it was just crazy um and yeah i mean it was really and also with when because it was all set in iceland and they were trying to get an act to go to eurovision and they sort of had that whole process where they would have to pick a song to go to eurovision and then they go but then i was was that whole ridiculous bit where they all all the artists are on a boat and then the boat explodes that's right yeah slightly uh dramatic <laughs> but uh yeah. yeah it was just so it was just ridiculous the whole thing but um well yeah they, they captured it really well i thought um of what goes on around your origin it's not just you know that one yeah. event the whole process you know leading up to it and all that kind of thing and the events around it. I'm going to have to watch it again um, just around Eurovision time just to connect yeah. it all in and stuff. But um, speaking of ridiculousness, some of the song lyrics can just be absolutely wild. So people can choose to sing in English or in their national yeah. language. But some of the lyrics I, I was looking at for this are just so ridiculous. So there's one from France in 2010, and this is someone called Jesse Matador. Oh, and, yes. and the lyrics are, Darling, get up and move your bottom. Dance closely, tightly for a salty kiss. Take me from the side, do your shake. Ooh la la, it's getting hot. I feel the stuff coming up. Like, that's so oh, ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, fair play, you know, it just sounds like it's it just a funny one. And actually, Russia, before they obviously became a little bit more conservative, um, 2007. This one is a uh, gotta tease you nasty guy. So take it. Don't be shy. Put your cherry on my cake and taste my cherry pie. Like go Russia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Honestly, I mean, I'm so, so glad you recited those because I, I, it, I, I mean, with some songs I spend, I, I pay more attention to the lyrics than others, but I didn't realize how sexual <laughs> some of those were. I mean, I, I was always remember Scooch in 2007 and they're, Comment, would you like something to suck on for landing, sir? You know, the, the, oh, that's that right, because they had the whole airplane thing and air yeah. hostesses. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, when you think about it in an adult context, yeah, yeah, you <laughs> stands with a lollipop kind of thing. It's, um, yeah, oh my gosh. <laughs> and do you find like that the fans like the kind of overtly sexual stuff, or they like just the kind of sneaky, haha, you know, we have to the more subtle kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, as, as per everyone's everyone's different, um, but I also think with in the fandom, I think it, it's inter It is interesting to look at the. Um, I think a lot, a lot of countries sort of the, when they produce a song and send it to Eurovision. I mean, I, I think in you know, like Cyprus in twenty eighteen, you know, that was like a really solid pop song, and all the fans loved it because it was one of those songs that you might be able to hear in the charts, or you know, you could hear it on Radio One or whatever. Um, and you know, and I think there's a 
it's it was some fans that I think some like if I take Germany for this year with Jendrick's song I don't feel hate, which I just love. It's just you know, he's doing a lot of um Instagram videos around, you know, like not spreading hate on the internet and all this all this kind of thing. And and a lot of fans are sort of like criticizing him for his song because they sort of see it as too cheesy or too, you know, too trashy or whatever. Um whereas if you look at a different, completely, completely different song. I don't know, Lithuania, for example, and Discotheque by the Roop this year, which is, which is really good, um, and you know that's sort of seen as like quite cool. Um, so it's interesting within the fandom that some people like to hear things that can be considered more mainstream and more maybe accepted, maybe um, than say other songs. Um, but then again, as I say, fans like you know everyone likes. Their, I think I think the thing was music taste is so individual, yeah, and you know personal. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, we all. I think like we all sort of like. I think fans like like to live differently, but together, you know. Um, but I think with social media, it just makes it so easy for people to like criticize each other's music tastes and you oh, know an endless circle of it all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Do you, um, do you have favorite like even outfits? Because some of the outfits have been very classic, and some of them have been fairly risque. Like you said earlier, the one about the leather and stuff—it's very mm. hardcore. And a lot of kind of Euro pop and Euro trash and stuff like that can be very, you know, essentially looks like BDSM. You know, you're getting ready for a night out in the club kind of thing. There's like harnesses and everything else. And do you find that the the, the what's your favorite outfit that's kind of a little bit risque? Hmm. I mean, I probably would. I would say I. I would say Iceland that year, but I'll just. I'll try and think of another example. Oh dear. Um. I mean, I know there's this. Uh, while I'm thinking about that, there is a whole thing called the Barbara Dex Award. I don't know if you've heard about it, where mm. I think fans every year vote for the the dress that is. It, that is the worst that they think that they believe is the worst worst dressed or whatever. Yeah, I remember perfect. Slovenia was Slovenia two thousand and eight, which sort of had that kind of leather aesthetic, but she was like in a glass, not a glass cage, uh, in like as a metal cage, and she had these chains, I think, and there was this guy, I think, I don't know if he was chained to a a chain was around his neck or something. I'm not sure. That was quite. Yeah, a little quite, bit risque. That might get banned. Risque, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and oh, trying to think of some others. See, it's interesting because it, I think for me, I mustn't pay much attention to costumes. Just think it's quite interesting. Um, <laughs> there you go. That's that's the postdoc lined up for you. The costumes are <laughs> part of things. <laughs> Yeah. Well, if we talk about the the complete absence of sex, like the what was the year when it was like the little old grannies who wore oh, the babushkas? Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, I loved. They were just great. I mean, you know, I think they were sort of this. They were there to even like get promote, like sort of support their their local hometown and that kind of thing as well. And I think money would any money that they received from going to Europe was going to go and help their local hometown and everything um which is just it was just just lovely um and then they were just it, the, the grannies were just so you couldn't you could not you could not not like them if you know what i mean you, you know they were so warm and you know just i think i think combined they were like the oldest like 
act, I think, in Eurovision history, I think, or something like combined age. <laughs> yeah. And well, even amongst themselves, I think they were like, what, 60, 70 year olds or something. Yeah. Like, not the typical Eurovision song entrance for sure. So, yeah, that was, that was an interesting one. I think like a lot of the Irish entries for a while, we went very classic and tried to kind of evoke this, you know, old school Ireland that was like red hair, mm. fair maidens, you know, you know, this kind of very lots of green all that kind of thing so <laughs> we'd not much sex going on for a while maybe till Jedward came back with their mm. in the rain and you know I, there may be some leather perhaps in that performance Probably. or something, some kind yes. of PVC, yeah. something along those lines yeah. But yeah yeah so which act are you most looking forward to in this year's Eurovision now this week I think for me I think Russia um and Manusha's uh Russian woman um, particularly, and her her story of getting to Eurovision is just fascinating. I think the Russian organisers, I think, had arranged this national final like a couple of days before, and they were selecting people to go on it. And she had been picked about two days before, and then they broadcast it, and she won it. But I think the Russian, I think the Russian organisers didn't realise at the time that that. Uh, she's just fantastic. She's she's campaigning for gender equality. She's you know a bit feminist she's like pro-lgbt you know she's she's just brilliant and you know and she's speaking about all these issues as well while she's at eurovision uh which are, i think are being broadcast like on the eurovision channel instagram youtube etc and i think the whole song is, is all about female empowerment as well and um, I think that the chorus goes like every Russian woman needs to know you're strong enough you're going to break a wall and that kind of thing um, and I'm just and I think the dress that she's wearing on stage I think of the costumes is I think it's been knitted together by women in Russia as well so they've all like I think it looks like a quilt pattern almost um, and they've just they've just helped to like there's a bit of them on her dress, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, so we definitely want to watch next week. And I think the song, it like it's she's singing in Russian, uh, but there's also like it, it's a bit like hip hop as well. It's got some hip hop vibes in it, you know. And it's not sort of like I think that's the thing with Eurovision. We also talk about like, the ridiculousness of it, and you know, there's like a certain Eurovision song. But I don't. That, the thing is, with Eurovision, it could be anything you want it to be. You know, um, yeah, the joy and, of it. yeah, you know, and uh, you know, and that's what I like about it. You discover so many different music genres. I mean, I would, I think, thinking about it with Russia's song, I mean, it pro- I wouldn't think that's very me in like because I don't, I'm not really into hip hop to really, but listening to that, and I think the whole feminist and LGBT politics around it as well, it just really interests me, the gender. The gender but it's surprising though that she was successful given how homophobic a lot yeah. of Russian society can be and well, like their legislation can be and they aren't exactly what you would describe as very forward thinking when it comes to female empowerment considering, you know, domestic violence is essentially legal in the country. Um, so that's, it's a surprise then that she was able to vocalise all this without hopefully without fear of consequence for when she goes back home yeah i think when she got slice i think like a few weeks later i think they were trying to like replace her i think um and obviously you know she's she's still there so uh which is great news but as i say it's i was i think it was amazing how you know that all this happens you know and you know 
that's how it how, how how she got work. So well, we wish her the best of luck anyway yes. uh, in the in the in the contest. So fab. Listen, Jamie, this has been fascinating. I, like we need to catch up now afterwards and see if your, your prediction came true about <laughs> Russia and see how that goes. But um, where can people find you if they want to find out more about your research and and your love of Eurovision? Yeah, so I'm mostly on Twitter, so you can follow me at at shady euro freak i have to, that is an amazing username <laughs> <laughs> thanks yeah it's sort of like it combines like one of my favorite eurovision songs which is shady ladies by Ayla Rack from 2008 for ukraine who was completely robbed that year, <laughs> <laughs> year to win it this absolute fabulous pop number oh fab well you are paying tribute then <laughs> in, on, yes. on twitter so fantastic yeah. um yes yeah, so thanks mill and your luck hopefully everyone enjoys eurovision and uh, has a great old week a week of it it's a whole intense like saga now at this stage but um yeah so thanks mill and thanks for everyone for listening in as always you can reach out via instagram or twitter at glow west podcast and um, like we said at the top of the show if you want to support the podcast it's it's patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack and I'll chat to you next week.